I thought I'd give you a brief thing of who I am, where I come from, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, first of all, I became a Christian before I can remember. Um, it's not even my first memory. My parents remember me coming out of kids' work and being like, I've become a Christian, I've given my life to God. I don't remember that. So I've grown up always being a Christian. Um, Matt Yates put this brilliantly the other day when I explained this. It was a bit like, it's a bit weird. And he was just like, you've grown up with God. How cool is that? So I've grown up with God. <laughs> um, yeah. that better? Cool. <laughs> um, yeah, where was I? <laughs> Growing up with God. <laughs> um, so I've made constant recommitments throughout my life. That's developed, that's grown. Like when I was five, my depth of theology is not what it is now. Um, but <laughs> as I go on, I'm constantly learning more about God, constantly getting more on there. Moved around a lot as a kid. So the longest place I've stayed somewhere has been five years which is quite fun growing up, constantly shifting, constantly changing. Um, and then I went to Stortford on an FP year. FP stands for Frontier Project. It's a year out that um, New Frontiers run where you do a placement year with local churches. Um, so I spent my year working with Mel and Stu, doing youth work and worship, which is how I got involved here. This is going really well. <laughs> And getting involved in here happened through knowing them, through knowing um, the Gateses and other people who moved up here at the beginning. I went to uni in between Stortford and coming here. Um, I studied music for three years, um, which is helpful when you're a worship leader. Um, and just spent three years being a student, which is something I'm so not glad is over. That's such a cool phase where like, you don't have to earn money or do anything like that. Um, and now I'm here, moved here because I felt this was the place God was calling me and, and followed with that. A um, few of my likes and dislikes, just so you know where we're at. Huge fan of anything Joss Reedon. If it's in a comic, it's brilliant. Um, I feel like I'm a mini stew now. Um, <laughs> films, great. All of that sort of stuff. Huge fan of books and all of and music, obviously. Um, so, um, final thing on me is the best description. I thought I'd hand over to someone else for the best description I've had, which was it's my birthday last week, and I was given a card from um, Beth um, Beth Tromans, and it just said, um, "Mummy helped a lot with this card." But Beth described descriptions of the picture, such as nice beard and pretty hair. So I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm pre preaching on John um, 1 to 11, so if you've got your Bibles, turn there. If not, I'm about to read it out, so don't worry. Um, so far in John, we've had a brief description of John of what Jesus is and what it does, um, talking about him coming to earth, coming to, to save us, and that it wasn't known who he was as the Messiah and as the Christ amongst the Jewish people. And then John the Baptist coming and declaring, this is the way he's coming, this is who Jesus is, and then he's just called all his disciples. So this is the first thing he's done after he's called all his disciples. And I'm reading from the ESV, and this is the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, 
Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, it had now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. So, I'm just going to pray briefly to get this started, because, you know, God's good. Um, And then we'll get into it. Cool. God, thank you that you speak to us through your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to bring what you've put on my heart before real life this morning. And I just pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would do something through this, and that you would, you would take our hearts and just input something into them. Okay, so, this story is weird. I'm just going to put that up there up front. So this is the first sign that Jesus does. This is his first miracle, and it's making wine at a party. Can you imagine if someone comes to write your obituary, and the first thing they go is, do you remember when we had a party, we ran out, but he got us all drunk? That's not what you want in your life story as the starting point. But in Jesus's, that appears to be the first one. So it's a bit strange that it's even here. I'm just going to list for all the weird stuff before I give you any answers to this, by the way. Um, so these are the, there are seven signs in John's Gospel. This is the first. Um, so Jesus is invited to a wedding. We're not really told why. It's assumed it's probably related to one of his disciples. His mum's there, so there might be some family connection. Um, generally speaking, commentators vary from he's there with his mum through to he's a nice guy and people liked him. It's probably a bit of everything, to be honest. Um, but then they run out of wine. This is a big deal. Not in a British sense of a big deal, where like, we're like, oh, I can't do coming home from work and not having a glass of wine. This is like a socially awkward, beyond belief thing. It's the groom's role at this wedding to bring the wine. This is his first stage to provide for his new family, and he's ballsed it up. And his entire village is basically looking on if this gets known and going, well, you are a terrible husband. One day you're going to have kids. How are you going to provide for them? And this, like, commentators go as far to say that this had the potential to ruin the early stage of a couple's marriage because they would be known in the village as the people who couldn't do the party properly. And that would override everything that was known about them. So this is, is a huge deal. Mary then goes to speak to Jesus about it. As far as we're aware, Jesus isn't involved in running the wedding. But it's quite unlikely that he's involved. So why she's asking him, not really sure. Um, This is his first miracle. So she hasn't got any precedence to go, Jesus does miracles, I'll ask him, he'll make some wine. That's probably not on her mind. Some people have gone that maybe she's just gossiping, but that seems a little bit out of character from what we know of Mary. Um, So she's probably not just walking up to him going, oh, they've run out of wine. You know, um, so she and she says to the servants, 
do whatever he tells you. So she clearly expects something to happen. So most likely is that Joseph is probably dead. So Joseph is Jesus' dad. He would have been the family provider. We don't hear about him again since the birth. Most likely, he's not around anymore. Jesus is now the family provider as the eldest son. So Mary is going to Jesus saying, they've run out of wine. Can you do something? You've been amazing at providing for us over your life. Can you now step in and go to the shops, basically? Um, And what Jesus does is he takes that and transforms it into the first stage of his ministry. Um, The other thing with this conversation, no one answers any questions. Um, I was talking with one of my friends, and they said that if he didn't know Jesus better, he'd put it down to a sarcastic argument. Because the conversation basically reads, Mary going, they've run out of wine, can you do something? And Jesus going, why do I care? It's not my hour. or my time means his crucifixion. So what Jesus is saying is, why should I care about the wine? It's not my time to die. Which is a really weird response. Probably partly John trying to whet our appetite for what that means in the rest of the Gospel. So as, we re- as now when that phrase comes up, we go, oh, I remember that being said. I didn't quite understand it. Maybe I'll get more depth here. Um, but all in all, it's a bit weird just as an opening conversation. Um, and we then have... Um, Jesus, the word, the ESV translates as woman. NIV translates as dear woman. It's sort of halfway between the two. It's not the word a son would use. It's not mummy. Um, it's not even mum. It's the closest translation we have is in America when they ring up a call centre and they say mum. It's a polite way of referring to someone that you've never met before in your life. So it's, it's not really mummy language. So why on earth is he sort of distancing himself in this? Um, as I say, I'll come back to all these throughout the thing, just highlighting what went on in my mind when I read it. <laughs> um, Jesus then tells the servants to fill up the ceremonial jars with water, and this solves the alcohol problem. That's a lot of wine. The combined total of all of those jars was 500 to 750 litres. That works out at 666 to 1,000 bottles of wine. Their cities were about the size of our towns. This is a small village. So this is a lot of wine for not a huge amount of people. So my question is, what on earth does Jesus think he's playing at? Because everyone is really drunk. Like it says that they're, they're tipsy enough that they can't taste anymore. So they'd served the good wine at the beginning and the bad wine at the end. A bit like starting with like a really nice Rioja, then moving on to Lambrini, and then ending up on VK shots because no one cares anymore. Um, They're at the point where they don't care that it's good wine. And Jesus says, here is a tonne of more wine. So, why? If you Google this, you get a really interesting response. In America, everyone thinks it's grape juice um, and therefore not alcoholic. And it's fine, you get away from the problem. It's not grape juice. It is definitely wine from the way it's written in the passage and the way it's written in the Greek, it is wine, proper wine. Um, one of my friends at work commented when I was talking through this story, they just went, oh, so they're like our friend that goes around topping up everyone's glass to make sure that we're all completely hammered. And again, I was like, mm, I don't think that's quite what Jesus is at here. Like, he isn't really 
on the let's get wasted line. So something is happening that isn't let's all get drunk and isn't let's all be completely teetotal and not drink. And it's somewhere between the two and it's not hugely obvious from a, the first reading what that is. Um, so the question to ask when we come to all of these questions is what does John want us to get out of this? So there's loads that can be drawn out of this passage. I've heard it preached on and heard marriage, obedience to God, attitude towards alcohol, honouring your parents, and what to do if you want to see miracles. However, what John has said he's written this gospel for is to point to Jesus. And at the end of this sign, it says the disciples believed and Jesus' glory was manifested. So our main question should be, who is this man? Who is Jesus? So, I would suggest that the primary thing that this whole passage shows is that Jesus is loving and that Jesus loves us. Um, good thing the dictaphone also gets. <laughs> so, God is love. It's one of the names of God, it's stated throughout the Bible. It's the, I think it's the primary motivation behind this miracle. It's also the primary motivation around Jesus coming to earth in the first place. It's the primary motivation towards what he does on the cross in saving us. And it's the main motivation for the entire Bible, really, when you get to the root of it, is God's love to connect with us and to reach out to us. This passage looks at three different types of love. So you've got love in the practical, love of the person, and love spiritual. And I know those grammatically aren't correct, but they sound cool, so I've gone with them. Um, So first up is love in the practical. That's wine. (laughs) Mel put that on my stand. I so thought it was squash. (laughs) On the flip side, miracle. Um, (laughs) Phil, could you grab me a drink? Wow. Um, this, this preach is only going to get better from this point on. Um, so, love in the practical. most obvious way Jesus shows love throughout this is in the practical. Most obviously, he provides wine when there is a shortage of wine. So this is a completely practical thing. Um, as I've said, running out of wine was beyond awkward. It's not a British sense of embarrassment. It is a cultural sense of shame. Um, and Jesus solves what is a very practical, seemingly mundane problem. So Jesus is interested and wants to be involved in the everyday element of our lives, in the practical side of our lives. Throughout the Bible, Jesus does this all the time. So in the Gospels, the first time is obviously this. He's turning water into wine. He then goes on to multiply food that we know of at least twice. So in all the Gospels, you have the feeding of the 5,000, which is the really famous one. In Matthew and Mark, you also have alongside that the feeding of the 4,000. So there's more than one time where his disciples have needed food and he's made it for them. Um, In Deuteronomy, um, it comments 
really as an aside, that as the Israelites were in the desert wandering around, God maintained their clothes and their shoes so that it wouldn't, they wouldn't need any more. Which is something that I, I'm reading through the Bible chronologically and I got all through Exodus and all through Deuteronomy and it didn't even occur to me that that might be helpful. Um, and then you read it and you're just like, well, God's clearly thinking about the everyday sort of, how, do you, how are you going to do food? What are you going to do when your clothes run out? Like, he's got these things. Um, the law is just full of provision. So there are bits that talk about what to do if your house gets damp and the priest has to come and look at it and make sure it isn't spreading throughout the village and make sure no one else has, has got it and all this sort of stuff. And it is just full and full of very practical things to stop disease and to help you be healthy and things like that. Paul even says to Timothy at one point, rather fittingly, um, he's giving all these things on instructions for elders and things to do in pastoral situations. And then he goes, and make sure you have a bit of wine because it will help ease those stomach problems you've got. And then he goes on to what to do with the next church. And it's just so, such practical advice in the midst of it. And God actually cares about providing practically for us. This is also something we can do to reflect who God is. So the most obvious element of this is the financial. Um, So part of our 12 steps for the next year as real life is reaching out to the poor. Mel's talk last week, I highly recommend if you haven't heard, go back and listen to. It was brilliant and sets up a lot of this stuff. Um, As a church, we're going to start giving in... um, practically to a local food bank, which is what this box is for. Um, so just bringing a, a bit of food, there's a, on our email list, there is a wanted list that goes out every week, and just ongoing, we're looking as a church to support that by, by giving them, them food to help run the food bank with. Um, but there's also giving to those who aren't poor in the cultural sense of the word. Um, so... Some extreme examples on different ends of the scale. Um, I've got a friend in Nottingham who is at a student work. Her student worker um, was in a position financially to buy a house when some of the students got to the end of their year because they needed somewhere to live. So he bought them a house and then gave it to them on really low rent to enable that. Most of us, not in that position. Um, flip side might be going out with a mate, you know they're a little bit worse off than you, you're buying them dinner, so just as an act of, we love you, we want to get this for you. Um, There are other completely practical ways to love people, so food is a huge one. As real life, I've seen that it is amazing how well um, new mums are supported in terms of food when they first have a baby. every time there's been a birth, there has been this rallying of people to support them during those first few weeks, which has been brilliant. Um, For me, I know I have been invited around a lot of people's houses, which I am extremely grateful for, and just very practically shows this. Um, Another one, um, particularly for singles, is babysitting. Um, Because we are in a position with so much free time um, in terms of evenings and stuff like that without commitment of marriage and family that I know particularly for me at very short notice have been able to step up for people and say I know you need a babysitter tomorrow, I'm here Um, and that can work really well Um, time is also one that we quite often don't really think about 
Um, I have been hugely blessed by um, a couple of families here who just open up their family to me and have welcomed me to be, to be part of that and, and be around when their kids are growing up and things like that. And it's such an honour and a privilege to be a part of that and just says so much about welcoming you in. Um, and finally, um, just offering out your space as well is a hugely practical way of doing this. Um, so I've been impacted on FP. Um, when I first went to Stortford, I had nowhere to live. And the Yates's put me up for technically a month, actually three months. Um, <laughs> and just, I didn't have any money. I wasn't getting paid for, for doing the year. So they put me up with no rent at all. Um, fed me, homed me, like, and it was just so helpful and so loving of them to do that. Um, student works run entirely because people open up their houses and say, do it round ours. We don't have a student work yet, but we do have life groups which run on entirely the same principle of people saying, have it round my house, and that is what enables our life groups to run. Okay, second type of love is love of the person. So when Jesus became man, this was not just a physical transformation. Um, he entered human history and lived a human life. So we see him coming alongside people, we see him doing human things, he eats, he drinks, other elements involved in that. And it all happens as it would for us. Um, in this passage we see him at a wedding. Later on, we'll see him at lots and lots of parties. Um, particularly in the other Gospels, you see lots of situations, and they always, the reason we know he's at a party is nearly always because someone religious comes along and says, you were at that party, and we know what goes on at that party, and you shouldn't be there because you call yourself a man of God. So Jesus was at some pretty good parties. Um, I think I'm allowed to say that. Um, and and continually lived in that area, in that culture, alongside that culture, and lived out a different way of doing that. Um, so, at this wedding, everyone's at least tipsy. And they've drunk so much that they can't properly taste anymore. And there's a culture going on that if they run out of wine, that's over. That's ruined. Like, this is a week-long party. Um, and they're half, about halfway through, and they run out. And everyone just goes, well, that's terrible, that's awful, that's like, we will ruin your life for this. Um, now, Jesus' response is to make more wine. But why? Because Jesus doesn't agree with getting drunk. The Bible is full of verses such as, do not get drunk on wine, but get drunk on the Spirit, and things like that. Um, it's not a thing of, yes, Yay, intoxication. Um, but equally, he doesn't agree with a culture that judges someone based on their lack of ability to provide. So, if I was Jesus, I'd be thinking, this is a point to make up that point. I can stand up and I can say, you shouldn't be wanting wine. Why is drunkenness so important to you? And why are you judging them for it? Like, you should be caring for your, your brother in need. You should be stepping out to help them make this happen when they can't themselves. Jesus doesn't do any of that. 
Jesus' love outweighs his judgment. Jesus steps up and out of love for the couple, not wanting to see them hurt and damaged by what the culture would do to them, provides wine which he knows will further drunkenness, but knows will save the couple from the judgment and from the pain of not having been able to provide enough themselves. So what does that look like for us? First of all, it looks like salvation. Because the entirety of the gospel is God stepping out with his love outweighing his judgment. If God judged before he loved, we would not be saved. Because God saw us in our sin and saw us when we rebelled against him and were going in completely the opposite direction and said, I love you more than I judge you and I will step into history and I will die on the cross to save you from the consequences of your sin, from the consequences of your misdeeds. So the most immediate application is we are welcomed in to the family of God, we are welcomed into our salvation and our freedom in Christ because his love outweighs his judgment. But then there's a secondary effect on that in in response to Jesus' action for us of living like that, we live like that. So, first element of this is that Jesus was a part of life and we should be a part of life. We're not Christians to be locked away in a monastery. We're not put away where no one can hurt us. We are out there in the midst of things. And this looks different for everyone. So someone once said about um, Israel, but it equally applies to us as Christians, that we are the shop window for the gospel and the shop window for God. What we do reflects on who he is. But the only way that you can be a decent shop window is if you're on the high street. If you're in a back street hidden somewhere, no one's going to buy anything because they can't see you. So, for some people, this is going out clubbing and being part of that mix of stuff. For other people, it's pubs, it's quiz nights. Um, There's a knitting night going on in town that a few churches are running. For some people, it's knitting. For some people, it's sports teams, running clubs, walking and ramblers societies. We're also, another part of the 12 steps, we're setting up At Christmas, we did Christmas at Costa, which was an acoustic night at the Costa just down the road. We're setting that up as a regular thing. We can now confirm the first is on the 7th of March. So, put it in your diaries. (laughs) That, again, will be a place to invite friends to just to get to meet people, to show a way of socialising that is completely Christ-shaped. And there's no preaching involved in that, there's no um, evangelism or anything, it's just getting to meet people and putting something on. Um, And then it's doing so in a a different way and a non-judgmental way. So, for example, with Acoustic at Costa, our aim is to provide something that enables and loves local musicians. So it's very common in musical circles that when you go to open mic nights and things like that, you're doing so because you want to further your aims and the people putting it on want to further their aims and everyone's sort of using each other a little bit and we're all trying to get a little bit further up the stage. Whereas what we want to try and put on is an event where actually everyone is there to support each other. 
And we are not trying to get anything out of the people performing. We are just trying to give them a place to showcase their talents, to try new ideas, to experiment with things, and to move on slightly with what they're doing. Um, so Jesus in the Gospels doesn't question the morals of people before they speak them. So this happens throughout in every encounter he has with people. The closest he gets to questioning someone is the woman caught in adultery. So brief cap of that story is that woman is caught in adultery and is about to be stoned as per the Mosaic law. Jesus steps in and says, he who is without sin casts the first stone. Everyone goes a bit, well that's not me because I'm, I'm a bit rubbish if I'm honest, and steps away. And Jesus then says to the woman, sin no more. But even that happens after he saves her. His first act is one of salvation and stopping her from death by the law. His second act is to challenge her. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus challenge a lot of behaviour and it always comes after someone seeks him or someone talks to him about it. He never starts a conversation with, you're doing this and I disagree with it. Um, the one time he does point something out to someone is the woman at the well and he says, you're doing all this stuff. But he doesn't pass any comment on it other than it's happening and it's her reaction to that that causes her to believe in him. It is not our place to correct our perceived flaws in other people. So, for me personally... <laughs> This outworks like this. I will not comment with my friends on drunkenness, swearing or blasphemy because it's not my place to, I believe, it's not my place to correct them on areas where they don't see a problem with it. They don't believe in God. Why should they care about how they use his name? If I come in and say, I believe in God, you should care, to be honest, in the flip side, my reaction would be, I don't really think he exists. So, I'm not that bothered. Um, what I do instead is try to live out a life completely based on relationship and completely different from that. So, hopefully, obviously, I'm not going out every night getting completely drunk, I'm not swearing all the time, and I'm not blaspheming. And what I've found in my life is that a lot of people, when they get to know me and start a relationship with me, change areas of their behaviour around me because they don't want to offend me without me ever having said anything. On the flip side... Some people carry on and just go at it and are like, I know you. Some people de deliberately decide to use stuff like that to make a joke out of it. And that's part of what happens. I, was, I lived with a guy for a short while who would make a bit of a joke about that sort of stuff. Since I've stopped living with him, he's now become a Christian. So I think there's actually a flip side to it. Of you live something out, people see something, and it makes an impact that... Sometimes you do not see for quite a while. Living in a Christ-shaped way, therefore, is, is how you see anything. Um, so Jesus quite obviously lived in a Christ-shaped way because he was Christ. So it was hard for him to do anything else. So the Bible talks about being in the world, but not of the world. So going out, being with your friends, doing what is naturally you... Like, God created you to be you. So, if you're not into clubbing, don't go out clubbing. It, it won't end well. 
If you're not into knitting, don't, don't, don't go to a knitting club. Cause, like, can you imagine me sat in a, in a coffee shop? So not me. Um, but then what you do in those situations completely changes. So it's gathering with friends who are gossips and not gossiping. And I know for me, this isn't necessarily one of my amazing areas, but what I try to do is if I'm asking about something which I know would normally lead to an area of gossip, I will always start it with the phrase, I'm not asking for any details on this, but is so-and-so okay? So it's a way of flagging up at the beginning, I don't want to go there, but I want to know that everything's all right and that nothing needs to happen. Um, if you're in sports teams, particularly, showing humility in defeat and victory is a huge thing. Like, I've seen Christian sports teams get really angry when they lose and really arrogant when they win and it is not pretty but like imagine if actually there were sports teams out there where what was known about the Christian members of them was how when they defeated they learnt from it and they moved on and they were gracious and they said you know what the other guys played better and we can see that and we can go with it and when they won they weren't like well obviously we're the best they were just actually really humble with it um, and then with things like going out and clubbing and stuff like that, and with drinking, I'm, I'm going to park here a little bit because I'm, I'm aware that it's one of the more common areas for everyone. So if you're in a sports team, then you probably then go to the pub. Like, um, there's quite a common element of drinking in our society. Um, just watch the news. But we, um, there is a culture out there, particularly in the clubbing scene, which... Um, uses alcohol to, as a means to an end to get what you want, particularly in regards to um, emotional and sexual manipulation. So people will go out and basically go on the view that once everyone's drunk enough, you can get pretty much anything because no one cares anymore. Um, guys are particularly bad at this. Guys are not the only ones that are bad at this. Um, I have friends that have been hit on multiple times by the same person in the same night simply because in that person's mind they've drunk more, they'll be more open to it. And they will keep coming back on the thought that it will eventually happen. Um, we so need Christians <laughs> that are out clubbing. Um, we so need Christians that are down the pubs and out there because we need people to showcase a Christ-like way of partying. We need people to showcase what Jesus was like in those situations. So the Pharisees were completely angry about where everywhere Jesus went, because to them, how dare you mix with people like that? But for Jesus, he said, I don't go to the places where everyone is complete, thinks they're completely fine. Um, and he was out in the clubs, in the pubs, making sure people are safe, making sure that when his friends got a bit drunk, he was the one getting the glass of water, making sure that people were getting home okay, that they weren't tripping over in gutters. He was the one making sure that there was someone to give sensible advice when his drunken friends suddenly have an emotional breakdown about something going on in their lives that they're only just now realising because all of their emotional defences have fallen slightly and are reaching out for something to fill that hole, he was the one there saying, there is another way 
you don't just have to get drunk. You don't just have to turn to guys or girls. There is something else. He was the one that, that looked out for their safety. And we should so have Christians doing the same thing. We so need Christians out there making sure people get home. Sutton Pastors is an amazing example of this. Some of you might have heard of Street Pastors or City Angels is another sort of similar vibe. Um, we've got someone coming to talk to um, the church, um, either at a meeting or a prayer meeting in a couple of weeks about it. And it's just, it's Christians going out on the street, not judging, not saying you shouldn't be doing that, but giving girls sandals when they've taken their high heels off because they hurt too much, and calling cabs for people when they're not in a position to get home safely, and making sure that people are okay when they're crying on street corners. And it's that element of, of love just going out there and seeing people. The times I've been on nights out at uni and things like that, and you're the only one sober enough, and it is not an easy job being the only sober one in a group of people, because they find everything funny, and it's really not. Um, but you're catching people as they trip up on the curbs and making sure they get home and watching out for them and when they decide to start on some random guy because they're a bit drunk and he seems like a bit of an idiot and you sort of are like, let's go away. Like, that's the stuff that, that needs to go on in those areas and it happens at clubs, it happens at pubs, um, probably happens less so at dinner parties but you never know. Um, <laughs> So that is love of the person. And then, love spiritual. So Jesus' love outweighs his judgment. And the whole overarching thrust of John's Gospel and of the Bible and of this miracle is the cross. So Jesus' conversation with Mary was weird. And it was weird for a reason, because Mary appears only twice in John's Gospel. She appears at this miracle, and she appears at the cross. And at both times, Jesus uses the same word to talk to her. And at both times, he brings something out of the Jewish system to cleanse and purify the new people. So, the jars used were for cleansing and purification rites in Jewish law. They were there to, this doesn't make the wine sound nice, but they were there to wash your hands and feet in before you ate. So, good wine. Um, it was all about cleansing, about purifying, about being spiritually ready, about being um, clean before you partook in something. And Jesus takes that and says, out of that system, I bring something new. I bring wine. At the Last Supper, Jesus then brings wine and bread and says, this is my body, this is my blood, and I break it for you. The cross is the end point that this sign delivers us to. The cross is the point where Jesus pours out his wine, his blood, for a people who did not deserve it and did not... <laughs> in some cases did not want it, but, but got it because of Christ's love. The Bible as a whole thing 
does lots of things, but its primary purpose is it's a sign that points to the cross. After Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden first mess it all up, Jesus says, through the act of clothing them, there is one coming that will, will fix all this. Someone will die, and there will be um, a, a clothing that comes out of that. Then later on, he calls Abraham and Israel. And he says, I'm calling you um, out of this towards something better. You are going to live as a sign for what is to come. And then he gives Moses the law, which as part of it has the sacrificial system, which says there is something coming in the future where a sacrifice, a death will be made, and it will release you from this this bondage of sin and this captivity, there is something coming that will bring freedom and will bring joy. And then he brings the prophets along, and one by one, prophets come up saying, there is someone coming who will bring salvation. There is someone coming who is not like what we've had before. Everything else points to this someone. And then John the Baptist turns up on the scene and says, there is someone coming who is what everything has pointed to and he's on his way. And then Jesus turns up, bringing water into wine, saying, I am here. I am the someone. I have come and this is my mission statement for my entire ministry, that I will come and out of the signs that have come, out of what I have given you to point to me, I will bring salvation and I will bring a a new life for you. And that is what this points to. That's what it's a sign of. That's why the disciples believed in him. Because they saw him as the Messiah. They saw him as the man that would come. And despite our sin, despite everything we've done in our, in our lives, everything we've done as humanity to screw up the world pretty well, Jesus would come along and make a way for us to be one with God again make a way for us to have eternity with him and make a way for us to experience a, a new life um, and a new, a new freedom in him. Okay, Matt and Dan, let's come up. Um, so to recap, this miracle is all about love. It's God's love of everything practical that we do and making ends meet and of providing for us. It's his love of, of us as people that outweighs his judgment of us and it's his love of us in the ultimate spiritual act of restoration where he brings us forward into to new life. Um, I'm just going to pray and then we're going to worship. <coughs> God, thank you for all that you have done for us, Lord. Thank you that, that even though we, we rebelled against you, even though we ran in the opposite direction, even though you had every right just to get up and say, what do you think you're doing? You, you came and you, you acted out of love and you brought us into your kingdom. You brought us into new life. You set yourself apart to, to die and to be raised again and to live a life of perfection that we might, might enter into that life with you. Thank you so much. Amen.